From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Anne Mossop. I'm Brian Reed. Um, I'm the host of uh, the podcast S-Town. When I was really little, I wanted to be either a magician or an actor. Everything changed for this American Life producer, Brian Reed, when he received an email from a man named John B. McElmore asking for someone to investigate an alleged sexual assault and a rumoured murder in his central Alabama hometown of Woodstock. Reed spent three years following and documenting the story that became the basis for S-Town, which quickly became the most popular podcast of all time, with over 40 million downloads. Reed is based in New York and continues to work as a senior producer on This American Life. You grew up in Shelton, Connecticut. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Um, yeah, Shelton is kind of like just a suburban, pretty normal suburban town about an hour and 45 minutes outside of New York City. So far enough where it doesn't, it's not like a New York suburb. My dad was a house painter growing up and my mom, um, she was a tutor and different types of teaching, teaching adult ed and things like that. So what kind of family were you living in when you grew up? Were your family storytellers? Um, not necessarily storytellers. No. I mean, my mom likes to read, but she and I have very different tastes and my brother and dad don't really read. She likes books that have um, very uh, clean, tied up endings. And I don't mind those, but I certainly don't need that at the end. And she gets very frustrated if something doesn't have a good ending. So like she was reading grapes of wrath recently she's in a book club she got really upset at the ending which i have read so long ago but i remember the ending it's like i think it has someone's pregnant or maybe there's an abortion or something i can't quite remember but it's a little bit um of a ruminative ending or a metaphorical ending rather than a clean plot ending and i think it upset her and what was your school like you went to school in shelton how what, what what kind of kid were you at school uh i was a theater kid i did the musical every year and every summer and those are my friends for the most part. And then I was also um, on the school newspaper when I got a little older. And that was a lot of fun. And I was the editor of the newspaper and I wrote a column there called Rebel Without a Cause, which was really fun. And I'd like to stick it to the administration and stuff and got in a little trouble doing that. Of so, course. Yeah. As every good newspaper editor should. Yeah. You went to Yale, which according to Google Maps is about 38 minutes drive from where you grew up. Was that your world growing up? Did your up? research, huh? Ah. Yeah. Creeping on me. <laughs> well, that's yeah. what Google's all about. Yeah, isn't it? no, it's exactly. And at Yale, you majored in history and theater studies. So obviously, the theater studies we can see that running through you from your school days. History, I kind of um, just found myself taking a lot of history classes, and it got to the point where I only needed a few more to get the major. And uh, so I think that was kind of why I decided. But I liked American history. I liked. I particularly was interested in. Um, historical memory so like the ways that history is remembered and kind of affects the present um was what interested me a lot in that major so um you also had a stint as a fish hauler in alaska how did that come about <laughs> and what was it like uh that came about because my college one of my college roommates is from alaska from a town that has a big tourist fishing um industry and he was just trying to get me and a couple and another friend of ours up there for a summer so a couple of us went up there. He worked at this fish hauling plant every summer growing up and he just invited us up and we like all crashed in his poor mom's house and dad's house and, uh, and just like smelled like fish the whole summer and, and, you know, would carry giant totes of fish, run them up and down the docks basically from, from charter boats. It was the most beautiful place I've ever worked. 
Your first experience of working at This American Life was in an, inter- an internship and you've said in an interview that you felt at home there because people were talking about the kinds of things like bringing a character on stage or scenes, using that kind of language that was common to theatre. Was that something where were you surprised by that? I don't remember if I was surprised. I just remember feeling like this makes sense to me. It makes sense to talk about stories this way. I remember, I don't know if I was surprised, but I remember being kind of delighted by it. Just like, oh, this is cool. This is a really cool way of thinking about radio stories. And, you know, I had, I had shortly before then gotten introduced to This American Life and really enjoyed what I'd heard, which is why I applied for the internship. It seemed like something that might be up my alley. And to hear that that was how things got made there was discussing characters and dramatic tension and bringing a character on stage and scenes. And to think that way, it just kind of made sense from from other previous work I'd done in theater and playwriting classes and directing classes and directing plays in college and things like that. What was the first story you worked on at This American Life? I helped produce a story called Numi, which um, was an hour-long investigative story reported by uh, an NPR reporter named Frank Langfitt, who was at the time NPR's auto correspondent. It was shortly after the U.S. government had bailed out a bunch of the um, car manufacturers in the U.S., And it was the story of this um, really special car plant out in California where GM employees, U.S. car manufacturers, had tried to learn from Toyota how to make a better car, basically how to run a better shop, how to run a better line, how to run a tighter ship. And it was a collaboration between two competitors, basically, um, where they actually flew American car workers over to Japan to learn from Japanese car workers. And they learned a lot of really important lessons and yet still didn't incorporate them. And like Numi was a great success as a plant, but GM didn't incorporate those successes in any of its other plants, basically. And so it was an investigation as to what happened there and uh, and then why, like why didn't it get kind of pushed out to the rest of the country. And what did you learn from that first producing experience? A lot, a lot. Like we did a ton of interviews. It was a really big story. It was really overwhelming in scope. It was historical. We were talking to people from over the course of years. It was investigative in nature. It was not the most flattering to GM. Just thinking about how to structure the story, like, you know, making an outline. I produced it with Ira. We we together, Ira Glass, the host of This American Life. He worked with me as an intern, basically. Together, we produced Frank. And just to be able to do that side by side with Ira to think through what's the outline of this story. Then, like, my job was kind of to, like, log all the tape And as I was logging tape, I was just kind of identifying tape that I liked and kind of putting it into the structure. And I guess Ira agreed that he also liked the tape I was choosing because he was like, hey, why don't you fly out with Frank to California and do some interviews? You know, it was like my third month of the internship. So it was just awesome that he he let me have that experience because, I mean, there's no better way to learn. It's a really unique thing to make a really long radio story. There's not schools for it. There's no films in this, you know, school equivalent. There's no magazine industry equivalent for narrative audio you got to learn by doing and i think that was like i can't imagine a better place to learn by doing than working alongside ira and, and frank and you know then bringing in for edits with the rest of this american life staff tell us about what it's like working as a producer at this american life how does... it's a great job it's a really really good job <laughs> how a story how yeah. do you how does how do you decide what stories to do we do stories that interest us that amuse us in such in some way or teach us something about the world that we didn't know before Um, or that sound different than we've heard before on the radio. But the kind of like overarching elements we're looking for are are characters that you can follow 
you know, through an experience who are good at describing that experience and describing how it made them feel and what it made them learn a plot, you know, along the lines of a good movie with surprising revelations and twists and turns. And then all of it needs to add up to some kind of new idea or thought about the world. So it's not enough to have just a plot or enough to have just a, a, a nice character at the end of the story, you need to take away something from it, some lesson or some thought that feels new. And so that like when we're thinking about pitches, those are what we're talking. Those are the elements we're talking about explicitly day in and day out as to what stories we do or, you know, one story may come in. It's like, oh, this is a good character and this is a great plot. But what is it drive to at the end? And we'll talk about what the idea could be. We'll try to come up with some theories, you know, like we're always trying to fit it into that rough formula. You said that one of the best things about This American Life is that you have the budget to kill stories, so to not go ahead with everything that you've started working on. Can you elaborate on that? I mean, it's everything. Like, really, it's, like, incredible that Ira had the foresight to, I know, you know, years before I was ever, on the, you know, involved with the show when he started when they didn't have a huge budget, he still budget, you know, included in the budget for things to get killed, for stories to get killed. And it's just always been there and it's ingrained in the culture as well. And this comes from Ira that killing something mediocre is a triumph because dragging something mediocre over the finish line and making it decent is really hard. It's very tiring. It's not that fun. It takes a lot of time and it's just like spiritually more unpleasant than making something excellent. That was also hard, you know, but at least you're making something excellent and you feel good about it and trying to make something mediocre good enough that you can stand it. It's just better to cut and run early and like focus on the next great thing. Um, and that's kind of the ethos we try to instill at the show. Even though it's hard, people don't love to get things killed. I love it. I like it. Because you kind of know when something's not working, you kind of know. And it's freeing to be told you don't have to work on it anymore, I find. And it's just hard. You need to like experiment. You need to try things. You need to interview people and have it not go well. You need to run at a lot of stuff to make the stuff that's great. Like you just need to just by sheer like like mathematics i think like you need to throw yourself at more stuff than you're going to put on the air if you want it to be of a certain quality level in october 2014 the podcast serial was released and very quickly became the most popular podcast of all time among other things what it shows us is that there's an appetite for that kind of storytelling the kind of storytelling that was very different in format to this american life and a type of storytelling that had a lot more in common with other media perhaps than with radio, that it's more akin to those kind of television episodes or, or various forms of writing. Did the success of Serial allow the producers at This American Life to think differently about formats and to expand the way, you know, they thought about things? What kind of impact did that huge success have on all of you? I mean, it certainly mattered, but my colleagues are always thinking experimentally. And, you know, I think it certainly was empowering and emboldening and overwhelming. You know, I didn't I didn't work on Syria direct, directly, so I only know just from being around and from knowing Sarah Koenig and Julie Snyder and those guys. So, like what they did, you know, it really changed the game in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And they wanted to try something new. They've been talking about trying something new for a while. They kept their expectations low as to what the listeners would be, and just figured and just thought of it as an experiment which is, I think, a good way to think about things. And then it really did really well. And so I think it was very emboldening to just be able to trust ourselves when it came time to think of the next experiment, <laughs> you know? Um, like maybe people will follow us, like they're into hearing new things in this medium. And that this medium has other possibilities that are waiting to be yeah, explored. Yeah, absolutely. 
So Serial had started production in 2013, but it was before that in 2012 that you received an email from someone called John B. Macklemore. Can you tell us about that email and whether at the time you thought this is a story? Um, it was an email that came not even directly to me. It just came to our general listener inbox. It's not even a tip inbox necessarily. It's not our story pitch email. It's an inbox where people send their reactions to stories basically or like w- when they're angry that we are talking mean about an animal or something like that and they don't like that. We get, you know, PD emails, things like that. And so John's email came into that inbox. So I was just reading this digest we get of listener emails every week and it jumped out at me because the subject line was John B. McLemore lives in Shittown, Alabama. So I read it and it wasn't very long and what he, it had a liveliness to it and what he was saying was happening in his town sounded bad. So no, I didn't know it was immediately a story, but it was to me immediately worth a phone call or at least an email back. And I pitched it kind of in our weekly pitching process to the rest of my colleagues saying, did you guys see this? Because everybody would have gotten it. You know, you think it's worth getting in touch with this guy? And everyone was like, sure, yeah, that's very little skin off your back. So you said about the email, I didn't know if anything will come of this, but I really need to go there. How much freedom did you have to follow leads, you know, to that next stage? I talked to him for a while. I talked to John for a while before I went down. And I had been talking regularly about my conversations with John to my editor, Julie Snyder, who at the time was the senior producer of This American Life, who would then go on to create Serial and later S-Town with me. That's a really long chain of accomplishments for Julie, but she deserves them all. So, she, you know, I was checking with her in the normal way that we do with our editors when we're working on stories. This is what this is. You know, I don't know exactly if this is a story or what it would be, but this is what's happening in the conversations. And do you think it's worth keeping to talk to John? And she would say yes, and maybe ask these questions. And so the conversations would continue that way. And then it got to a point where I was like to Julie, I don't know what else to do besides go down there. So either like, like, do you think it's worth it? And she was like, yeah, it's worth a trip. And we'll often do that with stories where we don't quite know. You know, we have a plan. We have an idea of what we want. But part of it is you're, you're trusting your gut. And that comes along with having the freedom to kill things. If it didn't work out, that would be fine. Like, that's built into part of the machinery of our office. In its original iteration, the John B. story was going to be a single This American Life episode. Do you ever think about what that version of the story would have been like? No, I don't actually. It's a good question, but I don't because I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know what it would be like. It's hard. Yeah. Looking back now, I think it's probably it's hard to see it from a listener perspective. Yeah. perspective. It's hard to see it as that contained, I must say. Yeah, I mean, if there had been a murder, like maybe it could have been contained in one episode. I think that's kind of what we were thinking. There might be some murder or at least some pretty nefarious thing that had happened. It was hard enough to figure out how this was. Never mind how that would be. How, you know how to do this whole podcast never mind one episode it's hard to revise it so everything changed with this story when john committed suicide in june 2015 and you returned to alabama to attend his funeral how did you go about navigating the line between reporter and friend um well i wasn't john's friend because i you know i was a reporter like to an am and that doesn't mean I don't have affection for John or care about him. It doesn't mean, you know, being a reporter subject relationship is a very human relationship. You know, a lot of ways I think you talk more and more honestly than you do with your friends in some ways. So maybe it's even closer than a friendship in some ways, but it's not a friendship. So what I was navigating, it's not to say I wasn't navigating something that was challenging, but I think what I was navigating is being a reporter, but being sad and being upset. And, and having you know, those yeah. emotions fully engaged. Yeah. And wishing it hadn't happened and feeling guilty that he talked to me about it. Like all the very human reactions one has when someone, you know, commits suicide or dies. And uh, 
And so that's what I was dealing with. So when, yeah, when I say I'm, I wasn't his friend, it's not a cold thing. It wasn't a cold relationship, but I don't think it was a friendship. No, that's really interesting. Yeah. That's a very interesting because I think from the outside, we would tend to see it as as a line more that with emotion you would cross that line from reporter into friend. But actually what you're saying is that being on the reporter side of that line doesn't mean that there's not that kind of emotional engagement and those feelings, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And if if we were friends, you know, John would have asked me about me more. Like these are conversations where I'm rarely, if ever, talking, you know, outside of a question, which is fine. That's how I want it as a reporter. You know, I mean, I don't mind sharing some about myself if someone asks, but I'm there to get people to talk. That's my job. And that's what he was doing. And that was our relationship. You know, so it's different than a friendship, you know, in a number of ways, that being one of them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We, we just thought that there were lots of yeah. conversations when you were talking to him about yourself and we didn't get to hear them. <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> the, the lost S-Town tapes. Mm-hmm. How did the story change in your mind with those events? And what, what were those kind of ongoing conversations that you were having with Julie at that stage? I mean, it was gradual. I mean, there was the initial kind of period where of just grief and sadness and shock and confusion and, you know, not knowing if it was completely possible that I would just go to the funeral and that would be the end of it. You know, that was totally something we talked about. But then not long after, like talking to John's friend, Tyler, you know, he was telling me and his family was telling me, like, there are these cousins that are here from out of town and they're up to no good. And there's something shady going on, something untoward going on with John's estate and I'm getting screwed. And, uh, you know, having known a John and Tyler's relationship personally and having talked to John about his wishes with Tyler, at least somewhat, that was like a thing to look in as a reporter that was being asked to look in by Tyler. So that was weirdly clarifying in a way as a reporter. I think maybe this probably happens like pretty, it probably happens a lot after a death, you know, that things arise that where there are questions, there's conflict you know, and this, so this was something to look at as a reporter. And then the other thing that arose was John had left behind this list of people to contact. Um, and it became apparent that almost none of them, um, were at the funeral and had been contacted. And in starting to talk to them, you know, one of the people on the list said, you should contact everyone here because it doesn't look like they were contacted. So that was another very clear kind of reporting project that was also very emotional because I was in some cases telling people that John had died. They didn't know. So when did it turn into something that was in your mind and in, in the mind of the people you're working with, like Julie Snyder, when did it turn into this bigger kind of narrative? When those two reporting threads emerge and short, you know, after John's death, we kind of just had a feeling that it wasn't one episode of This American Life. And at that point, Serial had been out. They were in the middle of season two. And so this new format had kind of opened up to us and it just felt even though we didn't know the shape this would take and we wouldn't figure that out for another year, the exact shape and how it'd be structured and and all that, we had a sense that it was its own thing and that that would serve it best and give us the most freedom to kind of invent something new with it. You said that you and Julie Snyder spoke about S-Town as if it were a novel rather than a radio show. You'd both worked on This American Life for a long time. You knew how to make stories in that format, but you wanted, as you said, to make something new. How did you start with that? Yeah, it was basically almost another year or maybe eight to 10 months of reporting. And during the reporting, basically what we talked about early on in terms of the novel idea was that coming from this American life, uh, which is a very, 
a very exciting canvas on which to do a lot of experimentation and creating different types of stories. Even within that, there still are some conventions that we find ourselves leaning on because it comes out of this radio tradition, um, a tradition in which you can't re rewind and you might be driving or doing some other activity while you're listening and comprehension is different than when you're reading. And so there are certain things we do on This American Life to kind of deal with that, like, you know, that come out of radio, like, you know, in the intro of things we're often saying why a story is important if there's an investigation we kind of front load this is what we found we you know um at certain points in a story we'll tell you why you're hearing it this is often what we're doing in edits when we're listening to stories as we're trying to pay attention to when we're wondering why we're hearing a story and then inserting language and and what we call signposting into the story to kind of let you know why you're in this certain part of the story if we take a tangent we'll sometimes literally and very crudely say um, you know, we're about to take this long tangent, but trust us, it's worth it. And we're going to come back to the story at the end. We'll actually say that on the air. And that's all great. And th But this was kind of, we kind of felt like that would be a cool thing to experiment get with getting rid of or doing in a different way. And when you're reading a novel, like you open the book and like, it may just start with a character in the middle of doing something. And it doesn't say like, you need to pay attention to this character because they're the main character or because they're going to do something important. Um, you may be in the middle of the book and a, a new chapter opens with a new character or some new situation and you're trying to figure out and orient yourself as to what what's going on and that's okay. Like you don't put down the book because it's a novel and that's how novels are and you just know that that's just part of the form and we wanted to try and do that in a podcast and like try and convince listeners to give us that leeway basically in the storytelling. So you were recording stories visiting Alabama after John's death. How are you organizing those threads in your head? Did you have a plan that you were building? Sometimes to? I wasn't. <laughs> like sometimes there were many moments of just like feeling overwhelmed, like feeling like I'm just here. I just need to document everything because I don't know what's going to be useful later. You know, I don't know what I'm going to be interested in. Like because we kind of were inventing this new thing, like or at least we were kind of open ended about it. You know, we were wondering where there'd be entire episodes with just a, a person from Woodstock who had very little connection to John, who's just interesting. You know, like we were open to that. And I did interviews in that vein with people who were tangentially related to John, but it was really about their life story. You know, hours and hours of interviews like that. And so I was gathering just a lot of stuff that I found interesting, which was fun, but also a little overwhelming because there's when you're in a place like, you know, there's a lot of possibilities and you can get overwhelmed about where to turn. So that would be conversations with Julie, talking about what we were interested in, trying to make decisions in the reporting as to where to focus attention. But the overarching threads were this estate battle. And so I would go to every court case. I would interview Tyler and then eventually Rita and Charlie, you know, at periodic intervals, like throughout this battle. And then also just my questions about John's life and talking to the people on his list and the people who were close to him. Um, throughout his life and trying to piece together a picture of him. One of the things that is extraordinary about S-Town is the way you've, the people come across, the characters. You know, in, what, in, a, in a sense you went to Alabama looking at whether there was a crime story and what you found instead was this extraordinary character. And uh, John B. McElmore comes to life in his own words and, and in the words of others. But 
ultimately, the, as the person who made this work, you're, you know, showing us those people. You're choosing what we hear of them. You're creating those characters in the same way that a novelist is creating characters. But at the same time, they're real people. Kind of. I don't, well, no, they're definitely real people, but I'm kind of creating them. I don't know that I could create characters like a novelist actually does. Like, I'm very grateful for reality. I find reality interesting and I'm grateful to have it to draw on because I don't know that I could sit at a blank computer screen and type out a character. I'm not sure I could do that. <laughs> made the decision to release all of the episodes of S-Town at once. What was it like the night before and the day that those episodes went out? We put them to bed on a Monday night for a Tuesday early morning release. And um, we were actually done kind of early on Monday, which felt wrong because, you know. Like finishing an exam early. Yeah. I mean, we're from a weekly radio show where we are working up until our deadline. We're sometimes mixing the second half of the show as the first half is airing you know, even on stories we've worked on for months. And we had been re-recording parts of S-Town that morning, you know, so I had done some re-records. Because there were seven chapters, I think it forced us to be a little bit more ahead of the game than we normally are, at least I normally am. And so, you know, the morning we made some changes and then that afternoon by like four, I was kind of done. There wasn't much for me to do. I was a little twiddling my thumbs a little bit, which felt weird. And I felt like there's got to be something I'm forgetting (laughs) that needs to change or needs to be done. But we put them to bed and then it was up to the rest of our team, you know, tech people and and operations director to kind of get everything loaded and ready to go, the website. And I uh, just like walked through the city and honestly, I felt um, it was a one of a kind feeling like I felt kind of floaty, (laughs) like I was like floating through the city a little bit, just like, I don't know if I'll ever make anything of this scope or like this again. And that's fine. and, And let me just enjoy this. And you know, and also not only enjoy it, but also kind of feel the emotions that aren't enjoyment having to do with John's life and everything and kind of just like be with it, you know, as, and so I just walked through the city and kind of felt relieved, excited, but not nervous. It was kind of like out of my hands at that point. And, um, I went and just sat at a bar in New York and waited for my wife to be done with work at like 10. And then we had dinner and kind of just, there was a bit of euphoria. It was pretty exciting. And what happened the next day? I got up early and started like looking on Twitter, which is not anywhere I ever go. But I was told that that was where you could see people responding to it. And uh, it was amazing to see people um, like work their way through the story because we released them all at once. It was the first time we've ever done that and I've ever really seen anyone do that or been aware of it at least. And to be able to see people move through the entire story, you know, at their own pace and at different paces. And kind of when people got to different chapters, they would say things online um, about those chapters was really cool and really exciting to see people work through it for the first time and also very moving to see people talking about John and responding to John and people from all over the world. I mean, here in Australia to like see John meaning something to people and staying with them and, and, you know, people saying that they think about their lives differently slightly because of John, you know, the way you do when you read a novel where it doesn't change your life, but it does something. You know, you think about something differently. It wedges itself in your brain in some way. You're, you know, off kilter in some different way. Um, And it comes back to you at moments. You you know, I mean, I think obviously the things about are worthwhile, things about leading a life, the things about time that are embedded in S-Town are things that will will stick with people and come back to them for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
the reception obviously was extraordinary. Um, I don't know what you were expecting in terms of listeners, but um, the, I tried not to have expectations. No, and, and so so this kind of extraordinary, it's been downloaded more than 40 million times now and I'm sure it's, you know, continuing to be so. It's had a huge impact on the people who are in the story, on you. Do you feel that you were able to prepare the people who were part of that story for what might happen when, when the story came out? I didn't expect it to get quite the reception it got. So... No, I didn't exactly say exactly that, that they would get this reception because I didn't believe that it would or no. Um, but we do, um, you know, we did talk to everybody who features prominently in the story, um, you know, in the weeks beforehand about, you know, if you guys want, we'll help you lock down your Facebook pages and um, any other online stuff you have and kind of offered them guidance on that and got to give them a heads up about the online world of this. And some people did it and some people chose not to and, you know, kind of just let them know, like, this is airing. This is what's in it. This is what it's about. I hope you listen. I hope you enjoy it and appreciate it for what it is, you know, and it was hard. It was hard to describe to people, you know, it was hard to describe what S-Town is. And I found that people, at least some people, like, you know, when they first heard it, hearing the name Shit Town, wondering, you know, it's about their town. People had, you know, kind of a skeptical reactions to it, which is completely understandable. And when I saw those, I would just encourage them, please listen. You know, this isn't a bad story about your town. It's a, a sad and I, I hope somewhat beautiful story, you know, about your town and a guy who lived there. And uh, I hope you appreciate it for that. And once people did start listening through to it, like that was the response I was getting, which was really nice. What do you think John would have thought of it? I wouldn't deign to guess, quite honestly. Yeah, I just would never deign to guess how John B. McLemore would react to anything because he's got such uh, an incredible mind that he would have very erratic and unpredictable reactions to things. So I'm sure it would be a bunch of stuff. He was a man with a lot of ideas and thoughts who wrote manifestos and wanted, you know, was in a way shouting at the world and posting things online and wanting people to hear him. And so I think maybe part of that would be gratifying, I would hope. I'm sure he would also feel overwhelmed, you know, with the attention and critical parts because he was a very critical person. So, um, but I, exactly how I would never venture to guess. After the extraordinary experience of launching that beautiful piece of work onto the world, what's next for you in terms of what you want to explore? Are there stories you want to tell? Are there different ways of looking at stories that you want to see if you can make them work? Uh, yes, there are. I'm, at, I'm back in my normal day job at This American Life, which is great. Uh, a lot of that job is I get to work with amazing colleagues and other radio producers on their stories. You know, we get to come up with ideas together. I get to kind of talk them through what, you know, they're reporting and listen to their tape and decide what's working. I get to kill stories, which is fun. Um, and I get to help people make stories better. We get to work together on them and collaborate, which is really, really fun. And I found freeing in a way to not have to come up with some other big story immediately, um, which is nice. But I did just do a story this week, which, which I found edifying about, uh, about this guy in, in Alaska who, um, kind of sets out with good intentions to, to research immigration in an unbiased way and gets lured into some right-wing news sources that he feels led him astray. I was interested in that story. I'm interested in, I don't know, I'm interested in all sorts of different stories. I'm interested in different sizes of stories. I'm interested in, in investigative reporting, 
yeah, like I'm just, I, I'm excited for kind of to follow, be able to follow my interests. That's like the great thing about my job and that can lead to things like S town and it can lead to five minute little personal stories too, which also are titillating. So yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program. Our show is hosted by me, Anne Mossop, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Mark Pickles, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. <laughs>